Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with Sam Sempil, chef, architect, and now author of Eat Lao, Recipes from a Lao Kitchen. The recipes in this book follow the trail of Sam's grandmother's cooking. Each recipe, like the scent of a signature perfume, evokes memories of a certain moment in time and tells the story of her family's journey from Lao to Australia. The recipes in this book aim to keep those memories alive and to share the unique flavours, joy and love of cooking from that kitchen. To discuss all things Lao food with Sempil, here's Reading's Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Hello everyone, I look after some of the events that happen at Readings, but today I am delighted to be joined with the lovely Sam Seffield, who has written a book called Eat Lao, but I'm probably pronouncing all of these things wrong, Sam, so I need you to take me by the hand and just take me through how I say Lao or Laos and how I say your surname. Okay, so um, thanks for having me, Christine. My name is actually pronounced Semple, so it's Sam Semple. Thanks for asking. I do reference Lao a lot in my book, and I know that um, uh, there's a lot of reference to the country being called Laos, and I'm okay with that too. But I suppose um, just as a Lao person, it's not something that we do. We don't normally add an S to the end of it, so I just kept it true to that, and you'll find the reference in my book, Lao. So, um, but I'm happy with either way. Thank you for that and thank you for that clarification because I think it's really important that we get why you called your cookbook Eat Layer. Why such a big statement straight off? When I was at home, when I was living with my family and my grandmother because my grandmother lived with me as well, there was always a calling to come to the dinner table or the lunch table to come and have some Lao food. So oh. it's actually a calling. It's like come and eat some Lao food, come and, you know, um, eat, eat Lao. So it was always natural for me to say eat Lao and to have that as my my book name um, because it is a bit of a calling for other people to come and try Lao food. Delicious. So reading your cookbook was a complete delight because not only did we get some gorgeous recipes, and we'll go into that a little later, but also we got in some ways a snapshot of your life. Uh, and I love some of the pictures that were in there. Dotted throughout the entire cookbook are photos from your childhood, but also photos of the country of Laos and of the different dishes. But let's start at the very beginning. There you are being brought up out in the sort of country Victoria before you moved to Tasmania with your family eating this delicious food that would have been, I imagine back then, so foreign to all of your neighbours. I think so. But of course, because I was a young child, I didn't know any better. I thought it was just a normal thing. And I think as I sort of grew up, I could sense that it was different. I could see in my friends' lunch boxes that they'd get different food. When we'd picnic, we'd do it in a different way. So these things happened gradually. But I've, I've got to say, I didn't notice the thing in Aubrey. I loved my childhood growing up in Aubrey. Gorgeous photo of you in your blues T-shirt, like the, the footy team. <laughs> well, that's right. And I find myself working and living in Carlton. I've come full circle. <laughs> you grew up in Aubrey and your family, your extended family are there and there you are having sort of 
picnics where you're doing some of the cooking at the picnics but not around a barbecue. Can you take us through a typical meal of those picnic times? Yeah, absolutely. So we used to go fishing a lot in the Weir and also in lots of rivers around Albury. But a typical day would be just spending a whole day from the early morning to dusk at the Weir or another location. We'd catch fish. I would actually have my own special fishing rod. I loved it. Nobody else could touch it where it brought in the most fish, I thought. You know, I was taught how to gut fish, how to prepare it, how to how to stuff it with lemongrass and dill and salt and pepper. For our listeners, how old are you at this point when you're gutting that fish? Let's think about it. I mean, I was I do remember being in grade one. So it would have been somewhere between grade one and grade three. I've got to say that's probably a six, seven or eight years old. Six, yes, around that time. And it's not unusual, you know, like when you grow up in the country like that, you sort of know how to do those sorts of things took a knife and <laughs> did the gutting and it didn't it wasn't squeamish at all it was just something that you did if, if you wanted to eat something you'd have to go and catch it you didn't waste a single thing so it was it was just a great experience and and we cooked it by the river and we usually had a couple of I don't know where they came from but I'm guessing the botanical gardens in in Albury some bamboo branches that were sort of split in half and tied at both ends and the fish would just sit in between and would just turn it over the fire. It sounds delicious. My mouth is watering just thinking about it. But I'm also imagining that you're the only family (laughs) that is doing that. Like, I mean, everyone else has got cheap sausages over at the barbecue. I don't actually remember anything. But uh, if they did, they would have been fed, yeah. So then you, your family set up home in Aubrey, but then when you became a teenager, you moved over to Tasmania. How did that feel? Yeah. Well, I was very sad because Aubrey, you know, there's a vastness. I had a lot of friends there. That was the earliest memory that I had. And I didn't really get much time to say goodbye, but we anyway found ourselves in Tasmania. It felt like an adventure, actually, really lovely. I mean, who can complain? Tasmania, we sort of lived along the beach. We caught lobsters. We had beach fires. It was it was truly amazing. <laughs> and <laughs> your parents much. set up a, a shop there, like a cafe, fish and chippy sort of place. What did they set up there? Yes, they had a restaurant there. It was in Burnie. Like my, my family are working class, and that's my parents' background. When they moved there, I think they naturally gravitated towards a place that was a bit a bit rough around the edges, and and they wanted to be able to sort of just settle down there and say, okay, this isn't, you know, 100% polished this place, but we love it and we want to make it home. Mm-hmm. And, and what they did was they put me in Kui Primary School and set up a restaurant in town. There was a restaurant next to a fish and ship shop that was open during the days and at night we would actually just, just serve restaurant dishes. But we weren't calling it Lao food because my parents were worried that not many people knew where Lao was. Mm. And so it was serving Lao food, but it was just an Asian restaurant. <laughs> but is this where you fell in love with the idea of restaurants? Because not only are you a beautiful writer, Sam, but you're a tenacious woman that's gone out and done a range of things, and we'll talk about that later. You do talk about sitting there in Tasmania, reading the newspaper and having your heart struck by an idea. And I wonder if Let's talk about that idea. I'm thinking about the restaurant over in in Fitzroy. 
did you fall in love with restaurant? Is that what happened in Tasmania? I think I always loved cooking. I remember I remember in Aubrey, my dad would actually carve spoons and things and sort of create a fire and I would collect grass and go and cook a soup. So the idea of hospitality and I guess the reward that you feel when you're creating food for other people, that came about very early on in my life. And Tasmania, I guess, further solidified that feeling of gratification when somebody just loves what you do and loves the hospitality that you give them. And so when I was at university in Melbourne, I was actually out with a friend on a night out and we we saw a newspaper, um, had to pull over for petrol, saw a newspaper article and I said, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I think I just turned 20 then. I'm not sure that I know any other 20-year-olds that say, hey, I've got a great idea. I'm just going to open up a restaurant. Like it's it's so wild. You And were you studying architect at that time? Yes, I was studying architecture. I think I was just under halfway through. Crazy idea, I know. I just felt pulled to it and I didn't really know much about Fitzroy, I've got to say, being somebody who was growing up, up, up in the suburbs. But I've got to say that I wanted to live in the city, in a place where people were creative. I was around like-minded people and I was going to university down the road. So it was, I felt that it was a perfect, <laughs> a perfect opportunity. And of course, when I got there, I loved every minute of it, but it was a lot of work. This is what happened, listeners, that at 20, she decides to start her own restaurant that specialises in the food of her grandma. It was really special to me that period of time. I mean, I was there for, I think, six years, just over six years. And the only reason why I left it was to be an architect. Otherwise, I'd probably still be there. <laughs> you know, I, I was cooking in there and my mother was there and my grandmother was sitting there at the front folding napkins. You know, whoever's listening, I think you, you'd know where this restaurant is. <laughs> so Smith Street. And, you know, my sister was there. So it was very much a family affair and female-led. Yeah. And female-led in the early 2000s, there was there was a lot of people offering opinions on how you should be running things. Wow. So helpful. But, but you had to you had to learn to be strong. And where does that come from, that nervous do? I mean, you talk a lot about your grandma and the influences that she's had on your cooking and on your life. Do you think that your spirit has come from her? Definitely. The, yeah. the, the females in my family are strong and I've referenced them in my acknowledgements in my book. My, my grandmother, you know, she was widowed early and she went through some hardships but she was always very consistent and, and that's why I miss her. Nothing would show. She would always be consistent. She would always be there for you and through food always nourished me. So that's one person and I guess my mother is the other who has gone through a lot of hardships also She's found herself, you know, just just single, and she brought us up on her own, three daughters, mm. and I think she did a great job. So for me, that sort of challenge and hardship of running a commercial kitchen at early age just wasn't something I thought about. It was just like, you know what, if you want to do it, you just get on with it, and you might enjoy yourself in the meantime, and that's exactly what happened. 
It's actually just such a beautiful story. It really is. I love there's a, a section in your cookbook where you talk about preparing for your wedding and your grandmother coming with the suitcase. Can you take our listeners through that? She came around in a little suitcase and I thought, oh, she's going to stay over for sure and, and I don't know how long that will be. I was living with my boyfriend who's now my husband and she sort of just came in and opened the suitcase and thank goodness it just had ingredients for the recipes that we were going to cook for our wedding and in it she had you know over a hundred I reckon little bags of ingredients with colorful elastic bands filled with salt some with chili some with a different type of chili sauces and she had um, prepared those to cook sausages and some steamed dishes for, for the wedding so Oh, it just sounds like such a magical day to me and I have this, such a vivid picture of what it must have been like with this this elderly woman coming in with her, her suitcase and these gorgeous little plastic bags. Like I, I just think it's extraordinary, such a, such a lucky gift to have, to be able to give to someone. Yeah. She did sit on that stool and point with her cane and say, <laughs> now that, now that, no, you don't do it that way. But I, I think about that day so fondly now it was a bit stressful then but now it's sort of like oh, I wish I had that day again of course of course mm. yeah that always happens that's one of the negatives of getting older I think <laughs> yeah, that's right that's right the layer of food is, is so interesting because there is some French influences and there seems to be influences from all over Asia into this cuisine if you were using sort of some words to describe the traditional layer of food, how would you do that? What words would you use? It's very close to Thai food, and I love Thai food. There isn't a lot of coconut milk in it, I've got to say. So a lot of the steamed dishes where if you had a Thai equivalent of a similar dish doesn't have coconut in it. The other ingredient which I do reference in the book is a dish called badak, and any Lao person listening to this would know exactly what I'm talking about, is a fermented fish dish which it adds like a fish sauce type of flavour to it. Mm. And so when you go to Lao, that's in every single dish and it's eaten all across Lao and it's, it's sort of the main source of protein for poorer households. They'll just catch the fish, they'll ferment it, it'll break down over time and they'll just get a bit of rice and just dip it in there and eat it as a main source of protein and it's quite flavorful but it's also used as a cooking ingredient and that actually is what separates Lao food from every other cuisine you can't mistake it there seems to be in this beautiful collection of recipes so many of the dishes have a kind of a comfort quality to it I always look in cookbooks to see what the chicken soup recipe is, you know, because that's everybody's go-to across the world that as a type of comfort food, as a, a food that you might have during the week. But it seemed to me that all of the bowls that Lao Food create have that sense of filling and, you know, lots of layers, that, that, that comfort type. Is that your experience as well? Definitely it's very comforting. I think you're very grateful for your food when you're eating amongst Lao people. Like it's something that you share as well. So every dish, it, it is very comforting. And the noodles and the congee that I have in the recipe, they're the things that, you know, you'd have solo on, on your own. Yeah. But there's other dishes in there that are also involved that are actually like you would have them with people. They're very communal and very social dishes. And when you enjoy them, 
when you sit down and you're eating something like that, which doesn't look like much in a photo, and people start eating it, it just opens up this conversation. It's like, wow, I can't believe it. Who made this? They've got what they call the best hand at making this dish, for instance. So all these conversations come up from these dishes as much as the comforting quality. Like you can certainly, and I have done, sit down on your own in front of the telly and go, oh, well. The chicken soup magic, that's what I call it. There's some passage in your book where you say how surprised your mum was. She was operating the restaurant down in Tasmania that people were not sharing food. That's a clash. And she did that in Fitzroy too, like as I was sort of cooking in the kitchen, not knowing that she was taking down some orders from the floor in pieces. So she would put them down and I'd cook a dish and then they'd serve it and then I'd get another one and be on another table for somebody else. And I didn't realise that they were from different tables. And then I heard, you know, I heard, hang on a minute, Mum, somebody's saying they haven't got their dish yet. And she said, oh, no, I've already given them something to share. And so we're just working on another table now. And I said, no, 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 (laughs) people don't always share a dish here. And she thought that was so extraordinary (laughs) because he would always share. There's no other way of looking at it. Incredible, incredible. So there you are Tuesday night and you're busy. You're busy at work. You're you're an associate director at your architecture firm. You've come home and uh, it's late but you need to have some nourishment. What do you cook? What do you make? I usually make something in advance. So, for instance, if I have to come home late and I want to bang something under the grill, I'm preparing something like the grilled chicken dish something which can be marinated overnight. Mm. So I'd prepare that on a Sunday or I'll even ask, you know, my husband to chop up the herbs and just coat the dish and then I'll come and finish it off when I get home from work. That's a good thing about Lao food is like you might look through the list of ingredients and see that there's many, like a lot of Asian cuisine. But if you do it in bulk, if you actually say, okay, I'm going to make a batch of grilled chicken and I'll just spend Sunday afternoon chopping things down and coating two kilos of chicken. It just means you've got chicken dead across the week or the following week you can freeze it. And what about if you're doing a sort of a dinner party and then you're creating lots of different dishes, what what would be on the menu? Yes, so I'm doing this for my family over Christmas. So what I'm cooking, I'll be making the Lao sausage for sure. Mm. That's something that I can prepare in advance and just grill the morning that it will be served. I'll be making the grilled chicken for a family member who's never tasted it. So that'll be a first, a lemongrass chicken. And I will be also making, it's the steamed fish in the banana leaves. Yeah, right. Gorgeous. That's definitely on the menu. And my brother-in-law, who I referenced in my book, loves the beef salad. So he'll definitely get a side of that. If he hears that he won't, then he'll probably not be happy. So (laughs) he'll definitely get that. When we talk about the sweets sort of section of this layer of food, it's very much still around vegetables and fruit. Can you take me through, there's a recipe in there for corn, I think with coconut. Can you take us through that? The corn dessert, I call it. That's what my grandmother used to make me when I was little and carry it in her pocket. It's really strange. but In her pocket? She carries food in her pocket. You know, if she would meet me halfway after school, she'd just pull out a steam dessert. I think that beats an Uncle Toby's muesli bar. But my daughter, that's her favourite, the corn dessert. I'm really happy that she's able to enjoy that after I was as a, as a child with my grandma, yeah. 
So what is it? So it's it's corn on the cob, still within with the husks, and then yep. you sort of marinate it or something. How do you do it? No, you strip the corn and you keep the the husk as intact as possible, mm. and you just get a sharp knife and you just make thin slices and turning the corn as you go. And all of that gets put into a bowl with some sugar. I think there's palm sugar in there, there's a bit of salt, there's a bit of coconut milk. But the key ingredient that binds it together is actually the sticky rice, which you have to soak overnight. So that's a little bit like corn flour, if mm. we can think of it that way. So you, if you soak it overnight, then you use a mortar and pestle to break it down. When you mix that through, it binds it all together. And when you steam it, it's just one piece. Oh, it sounds delicious, actually. It really does. And it's for those that um, are listening, Sam and I are talking at the moment at lunchtime. So this is a particularly difficult conversation to have because I'm so hungry. Sam, I just loved the, these beautiful desserts because they all seem quite light. I guess at the end of a, a heavy meal, that's what people are wanting. Having a sweet is a real treat. The sweets that we have are usually just fruit, to be honest, and the fruit that you see there steamed in banana leaves, you can see there with sticky rice. So it's even when you're eating fruit, you eat it with rice. It's not something that you normally, you're not just having a pile of sweets. It's a really special occasion. And those sweets are also associated with offerings in the temple. So if you're if you're making these sweets, you're making more than what you're eating and you're giving it away as well to the temple and feeding other people. How often do you go back to Leia? Oh, I haven't been in a, probably about 10 years, but my, my mother's been to and fro. I think she's there all the time, so I feel like I've been with her, <laughs> especially how well connected we are now with FaceTime and all that sort of thing. But I haven't been for 10 years. And every time I go, it, there's a lot of change. My family is still there living in the town that I was I, I was born in that town. It's 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 a little town just outside of Vientiane, the capital city. We still have our little family Buddhist temple and our family burial plot behind our house. So a real special occasion when, when I go there. It feels very spiritual and really meaningful. There's a gorgeous photo of your family in there, I think, all preparing for a meal in this that looked really fun actually. People don't tend to know Leia in that sense that they don't understand that it's just, you know, this landlocked country tucked between sort of Thailand and Vietnam, I guess, is it? Like people don't really, it seemed to me, have it on their radar as a place to visit. Yes, I've actually thought that too. However, the last couple of times that I've been, mm-hmm. I managed to see every single person in Melbourne there because of the French influence I think there are a lot of French cafes, beautiful cafes, beautiful coffee, beautiful bread and croissants. Mm. There's jazz clubs. It's a pretty cool place to be. It's sleepy. It's it's cheap. So you can spend a long time there just wasting your days away and just being out in the sun reading. So I feel like definitely people are finding out about Laos a little bit more and I hope it continues through this book. Eat Laos is a gorgeous book. There's many recipes in there, including how to make the beautiful fish stock, the vegetable stock, how to steam, how to fry, how to grill, how to make these layered desserts, a whole range of things. But what brings it all together 
is Sam's story of her family and how she found the gift of giving, I guess, through the cuisine of this beautiful, beautiful people. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Sam. It's been a treat to talk about your cookbook and to hear about your story. I do think it's a terrific idea if people branched out a little at at sort of big family gatherings and rather than doing a barbecue or whatever, they could actually look at steaming some fish in some banana leaves. It's not that hard. You've made it very simple in your book. I wish you all the success in the world. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Eat Lao is available via all reading stores and from our website, We'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you for listening.